one of the things I told you guys is I want to do is talk about family business. When I say family business, things that's pertinent and relevant to us here at Redemption as a whole and Redemption in Tempe. Uh, we've said that our mission is to make disciples who see that all of life is all for Jesus. And the way that we do that ultimately is by planting churches. And so we have con- currently we have four congregations and our desire is to continue to plant. So many of you guys know that we're planning a church in San Francisco that's going to be led by Ryan Elan and Justin Anderson. Um, in fact, Justin will be back here next week teaching to give us an update on that. Um, and we also have a desire to plant churches throughout the valley in Tucson as well as in Flagstaff. Um, and so we do have an announcement today to be able to say that we have our guy. This will be news to some of you guys and not news to, to maybe some of you guys that we have a guy that we think will be the guy we know will be the guy to go to Flagstaff. So you guys join me. We invite Vince Garvey up here. Stop it. <laughs> Just kidding. Seriously. All right, so you guys, this is Vince. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Vince. Um, so Vince has been here now for a while. Here, let me let, have you talk. Answer a few questions. One, what brought you here? Uh, to redemption. Yeah. Uh, man, it wasn't the summer. Uh, let's say that. Um, I was living in San Diego, and, uh, and then Justin actually always says this, right, that he moved from San Diego to Phoenix, and so somehow that made him uh, more holy, I think, um, but same goes for me. So um, here, here's the backstory. I got saved at San Diego State University. Um, I had applied to go there for certain reasons, and then God changed those, and I ended up being at San Diego State to be a member of Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, which there's some people in here, I'm sure, with that. Um, and then also be part of a, a college group called Remnant. And uh, this was through the Rock Church, and the lead pastor of that group uh, was none other than Justin Anderson. And so uh, he became my mentor in college and was the first guy to plant this uh, kind of vocational ministry, pastoral ministry bug in my heart. And so that, that kind of lingered and continued to grow over the years. Um, I ended up uh, kind of missing out on, on some more mentoring for him because he decided it'd be a good idea to plant a church and Phoenix or something, and so that was a terrible idea for me personally, but I think a great idea for all of us now. Um, but anyway, so he, he moved on. I finished school and went on staff with the Jesus Film Project for a few years, and, and here's where this kind of pertains to now. Um, the more time I spent in an overseas culture, right, engaging with nationals from other countries, the more my heart grew for the local church in America, right? The more I felt tugged and pulled for the local church right here in America. And so when I came home, I mean, I emailed Justin almost immediately and said, hey, um, I introduced you to your wife. The least you could do is get me a job, right? I mean, that's just like, uh, and it worked, right? And so that's, uh, and six months later, I was here uh, working as an intern for Praxis Church. Um, and, then, and then that kind of continued to grow. So that's how I ended up uh, here in Tempe. Well, let me ask you this, and you can help us figure this out. Why Flagstaff? Yeah. That's not a joke? Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, jeez. Um, it's not Yuma. Um, just kidding. No, 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 no. Stop it. Come on. I was joking. Just kidding. Um, yeah. Here's what happened. Uh, I was here, and then we planted Redemption Arcadia. So some of you might have been around for when we did, or sorry, uh, what was then Praxis Arcadia, which is now Redemption Arcadia. We planted that out of Praxis Tempe. Um, and then right after, I mean, we just saw God moving over there in Arcadia. We were excited about what he was doing. And so Justin and I sat down, and we began to think through uh, what does the future look like? Where, where would be another place we'd like to see a Praxis campus? Um, and he asked me, he's like, hey, where, if you were to stay in the valley, would you want to plant a church here? And I was like, ah. 
probably not in the valley. And so then I think he was thinking, I was thinking Tucson, which was not thinking Tucson, right? Um, but I was thinking Flagstaff. And so I kind of threw it out to him. I said, uh, you know, Flagstaff would be interesting to me. And this, this kind of comes from, I grew up in a small town in Louisiana, maybe 35, 40,000 people. And so 75,000 in Flagstaff sounds huge. Um, and, and so we, we, we did a lot of trips up there. I had some friends who went to NAU. And I always just loved the town. Um, loved snowboarding, uh, good breweries, that type of thing. So, um, and then on a spiritual level, we're talking, uh, I guess that shouldn't be secondary. Uh, let's go back a minute. So the reason why Flagstaff is, man, God just wants to do something incredible up there. No, legitimately, um, we've been spending a lot of time, in, like spending time networking, interviewing a lot of pastors up there. And they, I cannot say this enough, they have been incredible in their desire to see redemption become a part of what's going on up in Flagstaff. We're talking about a city where 7% of the city goes to church. 7%. Um, in compar- and that's, that's not even regularly. That's once a year, 7%. Um, in comparison, greater Phoenix area is about 36%. So um, if you're going up there, you're probably not going to get Jesus on you, right? And so um, we, we desire to go uh, to, to, to help maybe facilitate and spread the gospel. There are some great churches up there. We just want to be another one, okay? We're not the answer, but I think we're part of the answer of what God would want to do up there uh, to take men and women, to make them gospel-centered Christ followers that love and change the city of Flagstaff. Well, that's really good. Um, Tell us what we can do. Yeah. Uh, We always say this, right? Three things, and and if you heard, if you paid attention to anything Justin did last time, they're they're the same three things, right? Um, And the first one is pray, right? And this this becomes somewhat trite because obviously that's the one they lead off with, uh, lead off with, because next is money, right? But I want to say this: we are going to pray, and then we're going to pray some more, and then we're going to pray some more, and then we're going to pray some more about this thing. Okay, we. We are going to saturate this, and I don't, when I say we, I don't mean my wife and I, I don't mean Pastor Ricardo, I mean we as a church are going to send Redemption Flagstaff out, right? We want to be a church that leads with what God wants, okay? And so that's going to that's gonna come in a few different ways. We're going to have prayer nights here. I'm going to have like times at my house where I just invite people from the church to come out pray for the city. We're putting together a prayer journal, so over the next six months, you'll have things to pray for each month, each week, as you look at major dates in the Flagstaff calendar and things like that. We're going to pray and pray and pray and get teams of people up there, prayer walks, everything you can imagine. So we're going to pray, right? Um, Secondly, yeah, give. Um, This, man, it takes money, right? Like, we, we want to support staff. We want to do some different things up there. And, and ministry just isn't free, right? And so um, if you go to redemptionaz.com and you click on give, uh, the Redemption uh, Flagstaff Church plan is now an option that you can give to. Come talk to me. Um, free fill, fill, fill out stuff and drop in the box. But I'll say this. Make it ab- it's above and beyond your tithe, okay? This is, if, if you're coming, that's one thing. But if you're staying in Tempe, this is your home, um, Give here first, right? And then also give above and beyond to Flagstaff. Okay, that'd be the idea. And then lastly, I think some of you might, God might be saying, hey, you should go to Flagstaff, right? Um, some of you might be, might be feeling something. Flagstaff sounds like a place you could live. Like you, you hate 120-degree weather, but you love 85-degree weather and sunny all the time. Um, and if, and if, you hate, if you hate the cold... Uh, <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll buy you a coat. So, 
And, uh, but I think some of you might, 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 might be coming, right? And so um, all of those things, come talk to me, email me. Um, you know, we're going to hopefully move up there June 1st to get this work started. Um, let, me, let me say this as a disclaimer. This does not mean that June 8th, you're showing up to a Sunday service, right? We are, we are moving as missionaries up there to network, to love the city, and to engage. And then we're going to see what God does. We're going to pray a ton, and we will start a service and all that when the time comes. All right? And we'll be having informational meetings and things like that in the upcoming months. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Would you guys join me in praying for Vince, Flagstaff, and, and the people there? <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for Vince and Verity and their love for you, their intimacy with you, God, the fellowship that they have with the Spirit. God, we thank you as a church, Lord, that we have the privilege and also the responsibility, Lord, uh, the great commission to make disciples who, in response to the gospel, seek to live all of their life for Jesus. Father, we pray for those who are in Flagstaff who are are called by your name and yet have not heard the gospel, that will hear the gospel through the ministry, Father, of Vince and his team. God, we we so desperately want to see and to hear the stories of redemption, and not as our church, but the story of Jesus um, and the story of your spirit at work. And so, God, I pray as a church that you would remind us um, that this is hard, and yet it's what you've called us to do. And so, Lord, help us here in Tempe, Lord, to send Justin and his team, to send Vince and his team, Lord, um, and then continue to be a strong and healthy church, Lord, that we may continue to raise up leaders, Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks. We've started something here in the sense of uh, we're known for the church that makes fun of other cities. Um, Yuma, Tucson, things like that. I already told you guys, I have three weeks and there's no Tucson jokes coming out of my mouth. And so I mean that. Um, and you guys can hold me accountable. I got an email in, uh, can you please pray for Tucson? And I'm not going to make a joke. I'm just saying maybe later, right? <laughs> maybe at some other time we'll pray for Tucson. So, hey, listen, Galatians chapter 4. Hey, we will. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, turn there and meet me there. Um, If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and one of the guys will be able to get you a copy. Um, If you don't own a Bible, please keep this Bible. This is our gift to you. We say this every week. We mean it. You can have it. Um, If you own a copy but you forgot it, take a Bible so you can walk through the text with us. Galatians chapter 4. As you turn there, I just want to let you know that so far in this letter, we've been looking at the book of Galatians, as it's been very um, theological, it's been very personal from Paul, and this is the first time in the text that we get to talk about God in relational terms. And so my whole goal, my hope, my prayer has been um, throughout the day, at the 10, at the 5, at the 7, is if there's one thing that you walk away with today, it's understanding that God loves you. And I know there's a way that we can, we can be tried about that. There's a way that um, we, can, we know that God loves us. But I don't ever want to get to the point that we can just get past the fact that we are loved by a holy God. And so, again, that's the goal. Paul, Paul speaks to this church here in light of adoption and the idea that God is our Father. And so that's where we'll begin in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything— but he is under guardians and managers until the date that is set by his father. Let me pause for a second. When, when you think about adoption, I don't know what comes to your head or what was the first time when you, when you learned adoption. For me, the first time I can remember even hearing the word adoption, I had no idea what it meant. Um, and it was in light of my older brother, who's two years older than me, my sister, who's like six or seven years older than me, who's very, very rude as a kid, um, very mean. And, but you had to listen to her. So as a young kid, you had to listen to her. So one morning, my brother, as usual, was getting on our nerves. And I was only in first grade. And my sister was, I don't know, like a grown-up at the time to me. And she said, 
hey, is what we're going to do, we're going to tell your brother, we're going to tell our brother that he's adopted. And I am, like, in first grade, like, what's adopted? He goes, don't worry about it, just follow along. I'm like, all right. So she goes to my brother, and he goes, you know, you're adopted. And he goes, what do you mean? She goes, you're adopted. You're, you're not a part of, I mean, you're, you're, you're part of this family, but just, I just wanted to let you know, no one was going to tell you, but you're adopted. That's why you're different than us. That's why you're not as tall as us. That's, you know, all these things. And I'm just sitting there going, right? <laughs> what can I do? My sister would pound me, right? And so I'm just going on, and my brother just starts crying, and my mom's trying to get ready for work, and she's getting us ready for school, and she comes out, and he's crying. He's like, is it true? Is it true? And she's like, you know, what are you talking about? Is what true? And she goes, am I adopted? And she goes, no. Why would I ever adopt you? (laughs) No idea what it meant. All I knew is my sister was really mean, and, and, and I, I just, you know, by way of not wanting to get hurt too, I just went along with it. And yet, what we see in the Bible, and what we know from experience, and even those in this room, that adoption is a really serious deal. And adoption, ultimately, from a parent's part of you, shows forth just an incredible amount of love. And I, I, I'm so thankful in the scripture that it calls it adoption. Because the misconception is that we are all naturally born kids of God. That, that every single person in this room and every single person in this world, that we are by nature children of God, and yet the Bible teaches something different. The, the Bible doesn't say that, that those who can call God their father is a universal language or a universal claim because it talks about our condition first and foremost, first and foremost by birth apart from God. Paul starts here by talking now in a metaphor. When he says, I mean that an heir, as long as a child, is no different than a slave, because he has guardians. Last week we talked about the illustration of what the guardians and who the guardians were. In the Roman culture, they were people that were hired to train and to discipline the kids. They themselves were slaves. And Paul says, when a kid is a kid, he's no different practically than a slave. Meaning he or she has no rights, just like a slave. And he gives that metaphor, he says, unless or until the father intervenes. And in verse 3, Paul says, in the same way, when we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, Paul includes himself in there. He's saying, by nature, we are born into slavery. He uses that picture. And if you know anything about slavery, if you studied anything about slavery, slavery in itself is not just a position people learn, there's an even a mentality. Meaning, this is the way that things should be. This is the way that things ought to be. And so the picture is not just whips and people not wanting to be in their position. In fact, um, Hedriot Tubman, who I love and I love a lot, she, she writes about this and how she herself had created the Underground Railroad. And if you know the history there, and she says that, that she, she saved thousands of slaves and she said, I could have saved more if only they knew they were slaves. I, mean, I, I could have rescued even more, but they didn't understand their position. Paul says that. That's the way we were. He speaks to the Jewish context. Because their slavery was in the form of religion, and not religion in the pure sense, but religion and trying to obey God's law in order to earn God's favor. And Paul says that's a form of slavery because it had never worked. And he also speaks to the context of the Galatians because of their pagan religions and their cults. He, what he says here, when it comes to the elementary principles, it has an underlying tone of demonic oppression. He speaks elsewhere where the God of this age has blinded your heart. And I read that, and I can only think of my own life and go, I know what that's like. I grew up around God or understanding about God, but the life that I lived before God, I didn't think I would have never categorized as, yeah, I'm a slave. I was having a great time. And the Bible Bible says, yeah, you're a slave, and by nature, you're not a child of God. Hold your spot here and turn to Ephesians, a couple pages to your right. Ephesians chapter 2, 
speaking of the same context of who we are by nature as not children of God. The Apostle Paul speaks to the church of Ephesus and he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. He's not talking about um, your biology. He's talking about your spiritual condition. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of air, um, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and here it is, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul makes it clear. Our position apart from God is that we do not come into this world as biological kids. There's one biological kid of the Father. There's one only begotten Son, and his name is Jesus. So we, the picture he gives, we're dead in our trespasses. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is wicked beyond all belief. It doesn't mean that you're going to be a bad person. It doesn't mean that if you, if you don't become a Christian, you can't be a good dad, that you can't do good business. What it's saying is your spiritual condition, apart from Christ, apart from the intervention of the Father, is that you are, will remain a slave, that you're blinded. And that sounds arrogant coming from me, and it sounds arrogant coming from someone else, but ultimately, this is not me teaching this. This is the teaching of the Bible, and it's the beginning of the good news. Because in the same way that Harriet Tubman said that if people knew they were slaves, they could have had the opportunity to find freedom. They could have had, if they could have just admitted that the situation that they're in is dark and it's bleak, they could have had the opportunity to see the light. And for us, that light is an intervention of God sending his son Jesus. The only way that we can go from being children of wrath to being children of God, the only way that we can come from being sons of disobedience to being sons of God is by God and his willfulness and his love and his his grace to be able to send forth his son at the right time. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 4, Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's a sense that we are now being found by God, and it shows here that Jesus now becomes our substitute. And I want to explain this for just a second. Um, When it says that Jesus now was born of a woman, it shows that one, that he was fully man, and we needed him to be fully man. Because what God now demanded of us was a righteous life of what we've been saying for the past six weeks, we cannot do. What God demanded was someone to to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law of which we could not do. And so in his love for us, he sends Jesus. He's born of a woman under the law, and he fulfills it perfectly. He obeyed it impeccably. And so now Jesus takes his record of righteousness, and he offers it to the Father on our behalf. He goes on in verse 5 to continue and say he does this to redeem those who are under the law. Now, the word redeem there was always used in um, ancient history to speak of a slavery being bought back, a slave being bought back, a purchase being laid down, laid down so a slave would be purchased and have freedom. And he says that's what Jesus does. He goes to the cross ultimately and the penalty that he pays by being fully God. We needed it perfect. We needed perfection. We needed the sacrifice that God would accept. And so he's fully God, and he goes to the cross for us. That's what it means when we say that Jesus is a double substitute. So we use language like, he lived the life that you should have lived and you couldn't, and he died the death that you should have died, but you never will have to. That's what it means. He's a life substitute, meaning he offers his righteousness. And so now that we are righteous before God, the just judge, and then now with our penalty of sin, that wrath that we were born into this world with by nature and by choice, 
that wrath, God now takes every single ounce for every person who would believe in Jesus and pours every single ounce upon Jesus. We, we see Jesus going through the agony of this in the garden. And Mark, um, he prays to the Father, he's sweating blood, and he says, if you could take this cup away from me, please take it away. But he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And the cup that Jesus was referring to was the cup of wrath, the cup that had every single one of our names on it, of which God came into the world, of which Jesus came into the world, and he took it to the cross. Colossians says that he took our record of sin, and he took it and he nailed it to the cross. Thus doing so, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and now that we have freedom in Christ Jesus. And so the picture here is that of a courtroom, that we stand before God, the just judge. And he looks at, he takes out the book of our lives, and he looks at the book, and he looks at you, has your name, and he says, okay, you did some good things, you did some good things, but ultimately there's at least a spot on here, and I can't accept it. Therefore, the just punishment for you is condemnation. And before he lays down the gavel, Jesus comes in and says, whatever is due to them, I will take. Whatever you demand of them, I will give. And so now we are freed from the penalty of hell. We are freed from the penalty of our sin. We are freed from the wrath that was to come. Therefore, now there is no condemnation. Now in Christ Jesus, by faith, we walk with God. Ultimately, we stand before the God, as God as a just judge, as innocent. That's exactly what we've been talking about the past six weeks. That's the gospel. By faith, Jesus becomes our substitute. Now, Paul goes a little deeper here now. Meaning, as great as it is to have our sins forgiven, past, present, and future, we should never um, get sick of hearing that. As great as it is to stand before God, the just judge is innocent, and that we will always be innocent, because now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our record, but he sees the perfect record of Christ. No matter what you did last night, no matter what you'll do tomorrow, what God looks at is he sees the record of Christ, and he accepts it. As great as that is, Paul communicates that there's something greater. Because up until this point, Everything has been talking in forensic terms, and that of the law. The thing about having God only as a just judge and us being innocent is there's no relationship there. There's not a loving relationship. And so Paul goes forward. In verse 5, he says, He to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so what, what, what this doctrine of adoption teaches us is that God doesn't want to be a remote God who just sends his son to forgive you of sins. Though as beautiful as that is, he says there's something greater, that God himself desires to show you himself, desires to draw near you, desires to have you to have an experience of him. So he reveals himself through creation, he reveals himself through the scripture, and he reveals himself in his son Jesus, and he reveals himself in the spirit. And Paul goes on in verse 6 to say, And because you were sons, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The word Abba, Father is the most loving, the most endearing language that you can have of God. And God desires to be near to us and to draw near to us as Father. Amen? Um, he does this by choice. I was talking to Sean Johnson, who is um, one of the worship leaders at uh, Redemption Arcadia. And he's got three or four kids that he's adopted. And he always says how it bothers him that when pastors teach on the text of adoption, that they use only emotional language and never volitional language. Meaning they use it all in the sense that God looks at us and has pity on us and they just makes a decision as opposed to God saying, 
in spite of your sin, I will make the necessary move, the necessary choice in order to make you my children. Meaning there is a choice here. And anyone in this room who has been adopted or has adopted knows exactly what I'm talking about. That you look at a kid and you look at that kid's struggles, you look at that kid's past and whatever may come with that kid and you willingly choose to say, I will take on everything that comes with that kid. And what we see when God does that is God looks at us in our position. Though it says that as far as the east is from the west, that he doesn't remember our sin no more, yet he sees our sins. He sees our baggage. He sees who we are. And yet God says, willfully, I will make the decision. And the choice ultimately was God the Father choosing to send his son. And Jesus, being fully God and fully man, willfully chooses to come and lay down his life so that God would be our father. There's no greater privilege of the gospel other than to have God as our father. Nothing else. For me, I became a Christian. I got the gospel. I understood I was forgiven as a Christian. I never really sensed God's love until I was able to understand God as my father. And that was hard for me. I know there are many people in this room who have lost a dad or did not have a dad that, that, that measured up to other people's dad. And so you had a hard time looking at the scripture, looking at the text that say God is my father. Because your relationship with your earthly father wasn't what it was supposed to be. Um, and I get that. For me growing up, um, I, uh, I did not like my dad. Um, I hated my dad. And no need to confess his sin, he's not here, um, but we had a terrible relationship. I felt like, in my opinion, what I experienced, a child should never go through. And I don't need to tell my story, because there's many of you guys who, who understand that. I mean, to be honest with you, there's, there's, I don't know if there's a week or at least weeks that don't go by that when we sit down with people, there's not some sort of daddy issues there of what has happened. And it freaks me out as a dad, because I know one day my, my son's probably going to grow up and go, eh, this is what my dad didn't do well at. Hopefully not that bad, but I know that there will be a day like that. And so it's hard. And so I used to always say to myself, I can understand God as my God. I get that. I understand he forgives me. But God as a father, it's really, really hard for me to see. And then I remember the day. I don't remember when I got saved, but I remember the day that it made sense to me. And it didn't make sense to me in an emotional sense. It didn't make sense to me because I can see God being my daddy. I used to be in prayer groups, and I'd hear these young girls crying out to daddy, to da- God saying, hey, daddy, hey, daddy. And I used to be like, oh, come on, man. Just say God or Father or something. Quit changing your language when you pray, you know. And it bothered me. And then God showed me something. I remember where I was, what apartment I was in. And, and it was a sense where God had shown me that there was someone in my life who I had not forgiven. And I'd been a Christian for some time, and I'm like, forgiven? Are you kidding me? Like, I'll forgive anybody. I don't care. And, and it hit me. I've never forgiven my dad. I've never, I've never talked to him and said, I forgive you. And, and know what? I didn't want to. I wanted him to feel what I felt. And what God convicted me on is, how dare you? How dare you take the grace of which I've given you? How dare you look at what I have given my son to do? How dare you look at Christ on the cross and say that now you were willing to receive grace, which is undeserving, and yet now, not in response, give that same grace. It was in pointing to Jesus that I was able to understand the intimate love of the Father. And so I, I tried to call my dad, and I'd pick up the phone, and hang up, I'd pick up the phone, and hang up, and I finally called him, and I just, you know, we talked, and we had, a great, we had a great moment. But it was ultimately me saying, I understand what Christ has done for me clearly now, and he's freed me to be able to forgive you. And in doing so, I understood God's love. I think it was the first time that I ever experienced God's love. And so when Paul says that the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, I knew in that moment, my earthly dad was never supposed to be God. 
My earthly dad was never, never could be God. Even those of you guys who had incredible dads, he could never be God. He was never meant to be God. We cannot compare God the Father with our earthly biological fathers or men who were supposed to be our fathers who failed us. Here's why. They're sinners. God is perfect. God is holy. Do we have parents in our lives that will completely just screw us up? Absolutely. Some of you guys are picking up the pieces from that, and I'm praying that God would give me grace not to do the same thing to my kid. But what I do know about God's grace is he removes you from that. But it's ultimately in seeing Jesus. If you see clearly what Jesus has done, if you see clearly what he's done on your behalf, if you see clearly that you were dead and he's given you life, now you can begin to comprehend of what it means to have God as a father. Amen? The, the best story I, I can illustrate with this with, and I've shared it before, it's still the best story um, about what Jesus has done to give us life. It, it's by Brian Chappelle. And he tells two stories, or one story of two young boys in his hometown and how they would play in these sand mounds. And then these sand mounds were great for kids to play on and run around, but they're also dangerous because they were so close to a canal when the water would rush in into the sand mounds, it would leave the sand mounds hard on the, on, on the appearance, but if you got to the top, you can sink down to the bottom and then the sand would rush in. And so there's two brothers. There was an older brother and a lovable young brother. And as they were running on this hill, the older brother and the younger brother fell in there. And the sand began to just cave on them. And then when they didn't come home for dinner, their parents began to put together a team searching for them. And they searched and they searched and they frantically searched. And finally they found them. And when they found them, they found the younger brother with his head just popping out of the sand mound. And he was out. And they began to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. And when they got to his waist, he woke up. And then they asked him, where's your brother? Where's your brother? And then he replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. I'm standing on his shoulders. And you, you see the picture there, that the older brother gave his life for the lovable young brother. That the older brother laid a foundation to say, the only way that my younger brother, my lovable young brother will have life is if I give my life. That there's no other way. And, and as compelling as that story is, and it's very, very compelling, it doesn't communicate the point of the gospel. Here's why. Church, we are not lovable young brothers. And so when Jesus comes and he lays his life down for us, it shows the magnitude and it shows the weight of how much he loves us. It wasn't, it was calculated, it was decision. He said there is no other way of one, that we could become a family of God, two, that we could be forgiven and free, and three, that we would have a sense of identity unless he laid his life down, and he does that. And so if we are ever going to understand what it means to have God as a father, what it truly means to get the gospel, what it truly means to be human, we have to see whose shoulders we're standing on. And if we're standing on Jesus' shoulders, there's no way we can look down our shoulder toward, our nose towards anybody else, and we can begin to understand the redeeming love of a holy father. Amen? And, and, and Paul doesn't stop just to say that we're kids. When, when we become kids of God, when we become family of God, there's an inheritance that comes with that. In Roman culture, when you begin to speak of adoption, um, it was not babies that they would adopt. In fact, a man would adopt a, a, a grown man. So a man who wanted to continue his inheritance would take a grown man, and then he would adopt him. And in adopting, he would change his name, he would change his status. So his nature wouldn't change. Our, our nature doesn't change. We're still sinful, but our status changes. And so now this man is treated the same way that a biological kid would, and he would carry on the inheritance. And so whatever that means, he'd be able to carry that on. If the man was rich, he would have his inheritance. If the man was promised something, he would have that. And so we are heirs of Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. And my, my assumption is when we hear that, we don't really know what that means. And so I want to take the, the next several minutes here 
to unpack six implications of what it means to be heirs of Jesus Christ um, and co-heirs. The first thing we have, is got seven things here. The first thing is we participate in the promise. So Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 says this, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Last week we talked about the promise and what the promise was. The promise was that God would ultimately have a seed, the seed would be Jesus. And in Jesus, he would unite all nations, all tribes by faith. And so if you were in Christ Jesus, being an heir is that you were an heir of that promise. Meaning you participate in that promise. You have the privilege of being God's. And what that means is wherever you are now, God's going to continue that. Your walk in the Lord may be strong, God will make you stronger. Your walk in the Lord may be really, really weak. You feel like you're barely hanging on. God will, God will continue that. We used to sing an old gospel hymn in my, in my church um, that I grew up in. And, and the, the song that we sing was, um, he, he's, um, please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. You guys grew up in black church. You know what that's like. And so we, we, we used to sing that song, and that, that, that's it. Please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. Meaning because we are heirs of the promise, we are privileged of being a part of it, and we have a responsibility to share it with others, to share the good news of Jesus. The second thing that we have is there's no condemnation. In Christ, there's no condemnation. Sometimes I, I feel like we say that so much, but we don't understand that. And the reason why I say that is we, we let our sin dictate who we are so much. We let our failures dictate who we are so much. When I sit down, one of, one of the things that really um, gets me, especially with men, is when I meet with other men and, and they can't look me in the eye because of their sin. And then they, they drag their head and they're always afraid. And I want, I want to be like, first of all, I'm not God. You don't ever have to. I, I'm a sinner just like you. I fail just like you. And I want to point them to the truth that if you really believe the gospel, you can have your head up. You, you should never be proud of your sin. But be proud of the fact and be thankful of the fact that Jesus has already paid it all. He's already accomplished, accomplished it. The, the, you, you don't have to hang your head. In fact, the gospel is so scandalous that you should never have to hang your head because Jesus has already paid your sins, past, present, and future. To be a co-heir with Christ is to live as if you've never sinned before, and if you've never sinned, and you never will sin, but have the confidence in Jesus Christ. So there's no condemnation. N- number three is that there's boldness in prayer to the Father. Hebrews chapter 4 lets us know that we can come to the Father with boldness. And, and when I say boldness, we don't have to come to him trembling. Much like last, since there's no com- condemnation, we can come to him with boldness. The picture is we, we come to God like the prodigal son did in, in Luke chapter 15, questioning if he will listen to us, questioning us if, if at best we don't want to be his children, we can just be, be slaves of his. And God is saying, absolutely not. Continue to ask me. The picture that we see in the Bible of, of, G, of God telling us to pray for him is a picture of a widow who goes to an unjust judge and begs and begs and begs. And God says, you see this unjust judge? Aren't I better than him? Keep asking. When Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, how do we pray? The first thing he says is say, our Father. Meaning there, there's something changed of the Hebrew prayer now. God is not just your God. He's not just Yahweh, but he's your Father. Meaning we can, we can come to him. God will always answer his children and give them what they want or what they would ask for if they knew more. And so God will always give us what we ask for or what we would have asked for if we knew more of his character and of his nature. The question is for us is, do we pray? Do, do, we, do we draw to the Lord that way? Do we come to him with petitions and thanksgiving and supplications? The fourth thing that we have here is that we live by the Spirit um, verse, verse 6 here says, And because you are sons of God, uh, God has sent a spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. But to be led by the Spirit ultimately means that you're connected with Jesus. That the Spirit is constantly reminding you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on your behalf. 
To be led by the Spirit means not only you're connected with Jesus, but you're connected with other Christians because now you're brothers and sisters truly in Christ Jesus. To, to be led by the Spirit ultimately is having a firm understanding of your assurance. And this is really important because there, there are, have been theological debates for years and years and years of an understanding of preservation of saints, like once saved, always saved. And, and the argument is that, that there are some Christians who can believe upon the gospel and because of their behavior and because of their disobedience, no longer be Christians. Or the other side says, no, if a Christian believes upon the gospel, he or she is completely accepted by God in spite of their behavior, in spite of their disobedience. We happen to teach the latter. I think the Bible teaches the latter. Because when Paul says that the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, the language there is not a whisper, but it's a yell and it's a scream. Meaning it's a, I need you, God, and I have you, God. The reason what the Spirit assures us and reminds us that we're God and we're God's in our deepest moment, in our deepest, darkest moment of sin, of doubt, of depression, the Spirit screams and says, Abba, Father. There's an assurance there. No perfect dad, no perfect father, no perfect parents picks up their kids and say, I love you. And then for them to be disobedient to say, never mind, and throws them back. Never. That that would not be a good father. And so assurance says, you're mine and you will always be mine. I was doing some study on the Ukrainian um, orphanages for a class that I was taking, and there happened to be a family in our, in our church that had, had adopted some, some young girls from the, um, the orphanage there, and they were teenagers now, and I was doing some interviews, and I was talking about their experience in the orphanage and um, what were some of the worst things, and they said the, the, the sense of that nobody wanted us. And I said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, what happens if, if their family was coming in, usually from America, they would, they would have us practice our English, they'd, they'd give us brand new dresses, they'd give us brand new shoes, and they'd bring us in the room, and we'd play toys, and we'd hang out with the family. Sometimes we'd be able to leave the orphanage with the family, hang out with them, and then come back. But then what would be so hard for us as the family would leave, and then we'd go back to the orphanage. I'm also saying we weren't good enough. And there was something wrong with us. And so we always question, is something wrong with us? And even when they got into the family that they were in, they questioned, when is it going to be time for them to give us back? So so often we see God as that. And that's why I think it's bad theology to teach that somehow God's going to give you back. He's a good father. He's never going to give you back. Never. Some of us, we, we think we should be given back. But God says, absolutely not. You're mine and you will always be mine. I gave my son. It's, it's finished. It's paid in blood. There's no, it's irreversible. Adoption doesn't say God adopts you and gives you back. You will be his forever and ever and ever. That's the extreme love of God. The next thing that it says is that we are, feral, we are fellow heirs with Jesus, meaning we will rule with Jesus. The co-heirs mean we will rule with Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth. Now, we go, okay, that sounds good. I love it when we talk about things in the new heaven and earth, but what about now? What does that mean for me now? One, we're kingdom builders. That means kingdom builders, meaning your work matters. What you do matters. Your art, your creativity, the way you parent, the way you do business, those things matter to God. Another thing is our suffering. In Romans chapter 8, um, Paul speaking, it's a very parallel verse to our verse today. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, speaking about this, um, being identified with Jesus as our, as, our, as our brother and God as our father, he says, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And there's a sense of suffering. The Christian life is not something that's super fun. There is suffering and there will be suffering, but the promise is if we suffer well. And suffering well is not pretending that everything is okay. Suffering well is not saying that, that everything's great. It's not mean that you don't cry. Suffering well doesn't mean that you don't have thoughts of uh, depression. It doesn't mean that you don't even have doubts of God. Suffering well is that in the midst of that that you trust Jesus. 
In the midst of that day, you look at Jesus and say, I will trust you. It's hard. I have a hard time believing this, but I will trust you. I will trust in this. For me, I had a clear picture of this, and I'm thankful for it. My mom, I believed, suffered well. Because my mom did whatever she could, and you've heard me say this before, but she did whatever she could to be a pillar of faith in our family. Through all the crap that she went through in our life, I knew my mom suffered. I knew it. And she tried to put it together for in front of us, but we would hear. Every Saturday morning, my mom would be in her room with the door locked, and she'd be on her knees weeping and praying, and we could just hear our names in there. She'd say my brother's name. She'd say my sister's name. She'd say my, my name. She'd put, say my dad's name. And she just went through it, and she suffered, she suffered well. There was no doubt in my mind that, that, that what it, when I became a Christian, that to be a Christian was going to be life was going to be easy. In fact, <laughs> most of our lives, when we became Christian, like life got really, really hard. There, there are moments, if I could just be honest with you, there are moments when I'm thinking, gosh, this was a lot easier when I was a, a, not a Christian. Um, I never cared about certain things. I could lie a lot easier, not get in trouble for it. Um, I had no conviction of sin. Um, um, I had a lot of fun. And not to say that I don't, you guys, I still have fun now. I mean, it was just different. My, my life now as a Christian, though, it's harder. And there's some things that happen. But here's, here's what I would know about suffering is God never wastes it. He never wastes our suffering. I'm so thankful for the life that I went through and all the stuff that I went through because I, God uses it now. He doesn't use me as a, as a boasting or a bragging because God can use it. And it's the same thing for you. I don't know what your issue is. You've gone through suffering. You will go through suffering again. It's a promise. The whole point is because you're a co-heir with Jesus, you can suffer. And you can suffer well because you don't just look at Jesus as an example, but you have the spirit of Christ living in you. Um, Two more things here. Number six says that we get new bodies in the resurrection. Um, Joni, Joni Eckerson Tata says this, I still can hardly believe that I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone like me or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive, no other religion, no other philosophy literally promises new bodies, new hearts, new emotions, and new minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible promise. It's a promise, no, whoever we are now, our bodies, and the new heavens will be better. Some of us can think of things that we would fix right away. I'd be able to grow a mustache and a goatee finally. Um, I'm going to be 6'3". I'm probably going to play for the Lakers. I have all these things that I would have in the new heaven. La- last thing here is, and I'm going to close with this, the last right that we have ultimately in being co-heirs with Christ and him being our, uh, God, God being our father is we have a right to intimacy. So when Galatians 4, 6 says daddy, that's a language of intimacy. And so we even know I made fun of these girls who are in my prayer group always calling daddy daddy, which is still weird to me. There's an intimacy there. There's a closeness there. And I can understand that a little bit more by having a son and having two sons, my oldest son, Noah, where I'm constantly disciplining him and trying to teach him and telling him, I love you, buddy. I will love you forever. I will love you. And last night we were talking, and I said, I don't love you this much. I love you this much. And then he would say, I love you this much. And I said, well, I love you this much. And, and he tries to run from one side of the bed to the next side of the bed. I love you this much. And I said, you know what? Even when you, yell, you talk back to mommy, and even when you talk back to daddy, and even when you don't obey right away all the way with the happy heart, this is kid language. Um, <laughs> I'm still going to love you. And I said, you know why? You know who loves daddy? And he says, Jesus loves daddy. Um, Before you say, ah, he's a pastor's kid, and he's already learned that. Jesus is the answer to everything. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Hey, you know what I saw today? Jesus. (laughs) It's like, no. 
And, and, and I said, yeah, Jesus, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. And so because Jesus loves me, I'm going to love you as much as I can because he loves me as much as he can. And he goes, yeah, but we can't see Jesus. Where does Jesus live? And I said, well, and you get in those, those situations. You're trying to explain this to a three-year-old. I'm like, well, Jesus lives in our heart. You know, I think my mom told me that. Jesus lives in our heart. And he stands up, and he lifts his shirt up, and he pounds his chest. He goes, ah, I can't get him out. <laughs> I realize, okay, that doesn't work. <laughs> He lives, he lives close to us. He lives really, really close to us is what I mean. And, and he gets, he's starting to get that. And I'm trying to put in him that he ultimately, by faith, as he grows in the faith, will have a right to always cry out to Jesus. Right now, he's having a hard time sleeping through the night. And so when I pray with him, I said, if you get scared in here, just pray to Jesus. Jesus will help you. Jesus will help you. Well, a few nights ago, about 2 o'clock in the morning, we hear him screaming. And my wife's like, Noah's screaming. So I go in there, and he's sitting up. He goes, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Okay, he doesn't get it yet. Trust me. He doesn't get it, but that's a picture of what God wants us to do. And that's a picture of the right that we have. That no matter what, whether we're scared, whether we're losing a job, whether we're losing a kid, we're losing a relationship, we don't understand the gospel, we need something, we can cry out to Jesus. That's a right that we have, and it's a promise of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you've given us in your son, Jesus. God, we thank you that we are part of the promise. I pray that you would help us live that in a way that without shame, because you've taken our shame, that we would not live lives to feel like we have condemnation, Lord, that we would come to you as children, Lord, to ask you whatever it is that we're thinking, whatever it is that we're feeling, whatever it is that we imagine, Father. So we would have a picture of you as being the heavenly Father, the perfect Father. Not just the Father we wish we had and we didn't, Father, but the Father of what you promise. God, help us to see that we are adopted into your family by the work of Christ by faith. And I pray that those who are here who struggle with that idea, that you would help them. And God, I pray that they would see and be comforted in their struggle, that, that is the fact that they desire to know you as Father could be, Lord, that because you are their Father and because Christ has already worked in their life, and so in that we are thankful. Father, I pray in this moment that we just would be reminded as we come to the table to remember you through communion, Father, that, uh, that you have um, shed your blood for us and that Jesus has broken his body, that we are free. Father, we thank you for the intimacy that we have, that we can cry out to you. And I pray that you, we would. We'd cry out to you on behalf of our lives, of our family, of our friends, of our church, and of this city. That people would continue to know and praise the name of Jesus. We thank you in his precious name. Amen.